0: And definitely check out those shows as well. Angie Cruz is the author of How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water, a novel. Angie is a novelist and editor. Her novel, Dominicana, was the inaugural book pick for GMA Book Club and shortlisted for the Women's Prize, longlisted for the Andrew Carnegie Medals for Excellence in Fiction, the Aspen Words Literary Prize, a Russa notable book, and the winner of the ALA YALSA Alex Award in Fiction. It was named Most Anticipated Best Book in 2019 by Time, Newsweek People, Oprah Magazine, The Washington Post, The New York Times, and Esquire. She is the author of two other novels, Soledad and Let It Rain Coffee, and the recipient of numerous fellowships and residencies, including the Lighthouse Fellowship, Siena Art Institute, and the CUNY Dominican Studies Institute Fellowship. She has published shorter works in the Paris Review, VQR, Callaloo, Gulf Coast, and other journals. And she's the founder and editor-in-chief of the award-winning literary journal Asterix and is currently an associate professor at University of Pittsburgh. She divides her time between Pittsburgh, New York, and Turin. Welcome, Angie. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Oh, thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. So your latest novel, your fourth novel, is How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water. Can you please tell listeners what it's about and what inspired you to write it?
2: So the novel, How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water, is about Cara Romero, who is 56 and has lost her job, and been unemployed from a job she had in a factory over 25 years And she's now has to look for work. And the novel basically is 12-week sessions of her meeting with a job counselor called the Senior Workforce Program. And in the process of meeting this job counselor for 30 minutes each week, she tells the story of her life. It's amazing. I'm such a sucker for a good structure.
0: <laughs> and I feel like this is amazing. I used to have a Zivi, I do the Zivi Awards and I used to have a, a Zivi Awards for like the best structure because I think it's so underrated, right? It's so, anyway, mm-hmm. so I love how you divided it into 12 like that. Why now this story? And by the way, I love the playlist on Spotify. we <laughs> will be listening to it the rest of the day. So thank you for that.
2: <laughs> so I, you know, why now? I mean, I think that when you went to a book, you're not thinking the now. I mean, it takes so long to write a book, right? So when I started the book in 2017, it was a moment in my life where I wasn't sure if I was going to continue writing. I had been going through numerous rejections from my last book, *The Dominicana, four years of rejections. Really? Um, being oh, told that the book wasn't there wasn't a market for the book, that the book was too quiet. And, and I was thinking, my God, I still have time to start a new career if I wanted to. And you know, the Trump presidency really had me worried about what was going on in the country. And I was re- realizing what can I do with my gifts and what would it look like to start over? And one day on a platform, I was standing there in Washington Heights and 168th street. And, and I saw this woman reading some kind of handbook and she seemed to be like in her late fifties, early sixties, And I started thinking a lot about the women in my family who lost their jobs during the Great Recession. There were a lot of them. In fact, one of the largest demographic of long-term unemployed people are working class Latinx and Black women in New York City recession. And in 2007, 2006, 2009, and I said, wow, what must it be like to start over as someone who might not speak the language or who has been in a job for so many years and, and the workforce has changed because of technology and I just said, I don't know, like, I was like, huh, it would be funny to see them in an interview. <laughs> what would they say? And that day I just downloaded all these interview questions from online, the most popular ones, like, what is your weakness? What are your strengths? What do you dream? You know, and I, and Cara Romero came to me and she said, Cara Romero, my name is Cara Romero. I came to this tree because my husband wanted to kill me. Don't look so shocked. <laughs> you know, you're the one who asked me to tell you about myself. Tell me, you know, and then I was riveted by this character and I just kept listening to her for the next year. And it just came to you like that right at your fingertips. Yeah. You know, maybe she was always in me and, you know, I, in the process of working on my novel Dominicana, I did many, many interviews with women who came to the United States in the sixties and seventies. And I heard a lot about their arrival story and, and the kinds of things they went through at work. I heard many laid off stories and how that forced them into early retirement and how difficult that was to sustain how they had to figure out ways to sustain themselves, even though they weren't long-term employed. And I guess like I was planting seeds, you know, all those years I was working on the book for Cara Romero. So when she came to me, it was like a, like a way, like she was like, I am going to be the voice of my people. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a visual? Like, do you know exactly what she looks like in your head? I don't. I have a, I hear her. I can't see her. I mean, she looks like many women, right? Like the translator who's going to be translating to Spanish, Kiani Antigua, who translated also Dominicana into Spanish. She said, we are all Cara Romero. And I actually, you know, I started my book tour and I feel kind of like, strangely, a lot of people identify with Cara Romero or as the interviewer, right? Like these two people represent a big, section of our world in fact you know I had a man who said to me oh my god when I hear Cara Romero I hear myself and some of the things I told my kids and I said oh this is amazing that somehow this woman (laughs) is like speaking I guess because she's so candid and we're so afraid now to be candid because there's so little forgiveness for misspeaks and mistakes and I think that somehow I I sort of giving people permission or kind of affirmation for the ways that we could be messy or wrong or or trying to figure things out in how we're trying to understand racism, homophobia, classism, all these things or like and so yeah it's 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 been really interesting to see the response.
0: Wow. Wait, could we go back to the fact that you were about to give up writing and you had four years of rejections? That's crazy. Why how did first of all were you expecting, when you finished, were you like, this is, this is great. This is going to sell. And then like, you just kept getting rejected. And what, show me the moment when you were like at your most depressed about that experience.
2: I think it was that day that I started working at Carajo Romero. You know, like I was at, it was like November, 2017. I remember it very vividly, Trump had just announced a Muslim ban. There was a call on Twitter for immigrant lawyers to go to JFK you know, we were seeing tons and tons and tons of footage uh, of kids in cages in, you know, on the border, you know, and receiving emails like from, you know, my agent basically with letters from editors saying, oh, the writing is beautiful, but like, we don't know how to sell this book or we don't know, is is there a market? you know, and then smaller presses were like, it's not innovative enough. It's not edgy enough. Right. And I said, wow, like, where do I fit in this conversation? And maybe I don't fit right. Like in this conversation. And I guess I did feel despair. I felt despair because I, I was like, wow, like, this is something I love to do. And yet I have to figure out how I'm going to survive. Right. Like I'm not so old. I can't start over and find a real, a real way to build my retirement account and all this stuff, but I'm not, so young that I could waste time, right? Or lose time um, waiting to see if, you know, and also I was up for tenure. I wasn't going to get tenure if I didn't get into contract. I mean, there were a lot of pressures. And yeah, so I felt despair for my country. I felt despair for my own career. And got a Emerge. And you know, you know, I have a very dear friend, Jennifer Clement, who's a wonderful writer. She wrote the book on Prayers for the Stolen. And she said to me, you know, writers write. Like it doesn't matter if anyone's going to read the work. You are going to write you know, and I do believe storytelling saved my life, you know, in many different ways, like reading stories, listening to stories. So it's not a surprise that in a moment of deep despair, Cara Romero came to me so urgently and with so much to say. I love that. Tell me about some,
0: one of the stories or the books that got you through like a really difficult time.
2: You mean like books that like I'm reading Yeah. Or you said stories have been so important to you. So
0: what what was a story that like took you from one part of your life to another? Not that you you wrote, but like that you, Mm. and why did you need it so much and what did it do for you?
2: As a younger writer, I think reading a lot of the African-American writers like James Baldwin and Toni Morrison and slave narratives in general were really useful in me to understand like where my place was in the United States and how I'm part of this black diaspora. And that was really important for me as someone who always felt like an outsider in the United States, even though I was born and raised here. But, you know, during the pandemic, there were some some books that really surprised me and really kept me company. Like Vivian Gornick has this book called Odd Woman in the City. It's so great. And, you know, and I was in New York City during the pandemic and the city was kind of like, What we were missing was connection and that book is so much about connection and you know people meeting up and hanging out. And in some ways like having someone write about that experience reminded me like, oh yeah, this is what makes the city so beautiful. Everyone was leaving and moving to a place with a backyard. And I was like, "Yeah, but there's something really great about having neighbors and be a, all piled up on top of each other too." So I would say that book was really wonderful, and 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 I carried it around. Actually, it was like one of the thing, one of the books that I carried around with me. Like I was like, "She's with me, and we're having this conversation about New York." A talisman. Mm-hmm.
0: How did you get into writing to begin with? Like, tell me about the
2: first novel experience. How did that? How was that journey versus this one? I, I have a very, I think, non-traditional path to writing. Maybe everyone does, you know. But definitely I didn't imagine myself as a writer, as a young person. I only read Dead White Men, and you know, and I didn't imagine that I was ever going to find myself in a book and or tell a story inside of a book. And then, you know, I went to the university and I started reading, you know, African-American literature, Chicano literature, which is what was available at the time, and some Caribbean literature like Jamaica Kincaid and, you know... And I was like, oh, okay, maybe there is a place for Dominican story. And, but I wasn't convinced that I could do it. But I had like these amazing teachers, and they encouraged me to go to these like writing residencies and fellowships. And it was like slow, but it, like, I think I became a writer because there were so many different people who would read a little something that I would write, you know. But when I applied to my MFA, I only had 20 pages of a novel that's all I've ever written. Like, that's it, right? So, and I went to NYU, but those those pages <laughs> did a lot of work for me because anytime someone would read it, they were like, oh, you really could do this thing. Maybe you should try for this. And yeah, so I ended up going at MFA in that way. Someone was like, you know, you, you really could do this thing. You should apply in an MFA. And I decided to go. And my first teacher was a Jewish Dandicott, you know, and it was her first class she ever taught. So we like kind of came up in a, in, together in a strange way. And I guess like, yeah, like, I feel like it's funny because I think I was saying this yesterday. I had a launch event at my community bookstore. It's called Word Up Community Bookstore. And I was saying that, you know, the myth of the writer when I was a younger writer was that you're alone in your room and you're typing away and maybe you're in the woods and no one's talking to you. And, you know, and, and I didn't grow up that way. I grew up in a crowded space where the door was always open and the kitchen was always working. And And I like being alone, like, yes, I could do it. I could be alone. I go to residencies. It's really useful. But I do feel like so much of my writing practice, the reason that I've gotten this far in particular with this book is because I had community in those moments of despair. You know, I had great friends, like one of the wonderful best writers of our generation, Emily Robiteau, who was my neighbor at the time. She's like, she goes, you're a great writer. All you need is one editor. To believe in other people, I would probably have given up. Like, I don't think I had it all inside of me. I think it was really that I had people that really believed in the work and the story. That's wonderful, amazing.
0: Did you actually talk to career counselors for this book?
2: Yeah, you know, I actually did all of the. I did all the forms as Cara Romero. I went through a lot of processes and bureaucracy. Oh, as you, have, so you it, as far as I. Could oh my god! Yeah. You can't go very far without a social security number, but like I did do a lot of the career counseling exams, and and I played. I I, I kept thinking about like how far can you go, you know, and 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 thinking about like how difficult it is the bureau the bureaucratic elements of our lives. I mean, I grew up as a translator for a lot of my family members moving through these systems. So I have a lot of familiarity with documents and have seen how difficult some of these questions, especially the security questions, like they're ridiculously culturally biased. Right. And it was so fun to play with them, you know, and like give it a satirical (laughs) like, you know, slant in a literary work after all these years where you're just kind of performing a thing. You know, and actually having a character just be honest with the thing, and in some, and then of course it critiques the thing, right? The thing that I'm actually doing is critiquing um, how a lot of these uh, machines keep us out or allow us in. Interesting. Oh my gosh. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you
1: Learn more at BuyHeart.com.
0: This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed, be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything. It might be time to work on those things, and I have a solution for you. Therapy. Online therapy by BetterHelp. dot com slash moms don't have time what do you like to do when you're not writing uh when you're not working when you when you have like if you had a free day what would a dream day be you know honestly
2: i do a lot of not writing <laughs> <laughs> i'm like oh What my life is like in general, you know, I read, I walk, I meet friends for lunch, you know, I mean, for different books, I did different kinds of things to like, I always like to balance like with this particular book, because I wrote it so much in pandemic, I got into elaborate cooking, like a lot of other people. I have a 14 year old. So I entertain like some of his interests, (laughs) whatever they (laughs) are. But yeah, I mean... It's funny because I was thinking like, do I have a hobby right now? I don't have a hobby right now, but I used to draw a lot and paint a lot. And I'm thinking of returning to that. You know, I'm a teacher, so I mentor a lot of students. I spend a lot of time talking to young writers about their work. I am on the board of my local bookstore and I brainstorm with them about how to keep them alive and going. Yeah. So that's pretty much my life outside of traveling all the time. What are
0: the secrets to thrive? Like, what are you helping with with the bookstore? It seems like... Is what impossible? are, what are, yeah, no, not impossible, but I just feel like odds are stacked up against so many pieces mm-hmm. and players in the whole literary ecosystem right now. I, I, it was people, but maybe this not.
2: is, this is true. I do think that's true. I mean, this particular bookstore is like 60 volunteer is run by 16 volunteers and okay. very few paid employees. And I think that it's done a really good job of sustaining themselves throughout the pandemic, but in particular in Washington Heights being like the only bookstore in this neighborhood, it, What's been really interesting, and this is how I got involved, is seeing how it flexed a kind of fluidity for the demands of the neighborhood. So there was a moment where they were giving away, like they have a food relief program during the pandemic and they became a COVID testing type. And they combined that with book and literature, right? So suddenly, like they're testing people and people are getting free books. Like my book, Dominicana, was one of the books that they were getting for free when they went to get tested for COVID or food relief boxes would have a book inside of it, right? So, and, and I think that's really interesting to think about how do we get books to new audiences, right? It was really fun. But I do think that encouraging, I mean, part of the secret is really like telling people that these resources are there. So like a lot of people don't know that there's a bookstore in the community. They'll just shop on Amazon and they don't know that they could just order online from the local bookstore all over the country. There is a bookstore near you that you can order online and you could support and sustain. And I think pe- most people don't know that.
0: Or I think they value the speed at which they could do something else. Right? That takes a couple extra steps. So That's which true. Would, I, I know it seems ridiculous, but... I think that's the rationale. I think people are like, well, do I go online? They don't have my stuff stored. What's my password? I mean,
2: <laughs> totally. Know? And that that is true. And I find that frustrating too. And you know, and I but I do think that one of the one of the things I've been learning with time, and I think this really was true in the pandemic, is the value of when things weren't working so well, right? Like of having local businesses that were actually open yes. and providing stuff for you. And the truth is you could order a book and pick it up. And that means you have to I walk know. a few blocks and it's so good for you. You don't have to get it shipped; They can get into their store immediately. You could just walk over, you could call for it. You could... And walking and taking that walk is actually really good for you. So the benefits outweigh any kind of, <laughs> like this this culture for speed, which is one of the reasons I think my book also is doing something really interesting with time, which I hadn't thought about before, but. Now that it's out, I realize that what it's done is it forces people to sit down and listen to a person for five hours, right? Tell their story and all its nuances. And we're so rushed that rarely do we give anyone the amount of time necessary to unpack what they're thinking, what they're feeling. And there's so much value in the Desahogo. I mean, the book has this word that I use, it's called Desahogal, which is the undrowning, which you could write it out, or you could talk it out, and sometimes that takes days and weeks. And and when we think about things that happen to us, like loss, you know, the ways we grieve, it's almost like we have to do it so quickly and move on. But what this book forces you to do is not to move on. It's really just to stay with it and really think, and you know, and laugh. You know, this is there's a lot of humor in the book, as you know. Yeah, and um, the humor is, you know, it also connected the ways that we can cope, but also how even in the challenging moments, there's joy. So we laugh not to cry. Yeah. You know? So true. I knew there was like something
0: really wrong with the world when I was in some sort, not even a hardware store, some place that had all these random things, but my, my husband needed like a wrench or something like that, or some, some item houseware type. Anyway, he had it in his hand and then he took his phone out in the other hand. And I was like, what are you doing? And he's like, well, I'm ordering this on Amazon to be shipped. And I was like, it's literally in your hand. You're, you're holding the object. Why are you going to order it? And he's like, well, how am I going to carry it? I don't really want it. We were on a trip or something. And I was just like, this is so crazy. I was like, all the steps now that are going to have to happen to get this hammer or whatever mm-hmm. from the factory into the box, the box, into the car, out of the car. How many hands are going to touch this? box and logistics involved to get it so that we open our door and there it is mm-hmm. it just seems like beyond inefficient it seems efficient for the end user but actually it's completely inefficient
2: it's in terms. totally of- inefficient and especially because we're not thinking that we're connected to every aspect of this right yes like, no we, we don't think in about the it world as if we're not connected but everything we do has an impact an environmental yes. impact the climate impact you know a physical impact and you know Again, like this book is so much about community, right? So how she moves to the community, she goes to the everything store and the everything store. In fact, there is an everything store in a lot of communities, right? But you wouldn't discover it if you're always ordering a Home Depot, you know what right. I mean? And getting yeah. it shipped. Like, but there is a, and, and you have people that are informed and have been doing this for a long time and give you free advice about things. And you don't even realize all these resources that exist everywhere you go. Right. And it's true. Like it seems efficient, but actually it's incredibly inefficient. And sometimes things get lost and then they don't even arrive. And then right. you have to spend more time trying to right. resolve that problem. And, but again, this is about narratives that we tell ourselves Yes. of what's fast, what's easy and what we value not necessarily fast or easy, but even more, it's like the emptiness of it. Yes. Cause we're not connecting. We're true. not connecting. We're yep. not connecting to nature. We're not connecting to people. So true. Yeah in addition to the walking to the bookstore, which is another
0: ancillary benefit. It's also chatting with the people and seeing what other people are reading and Mm -hmm. walking in and meeting somebody. And then who do you bump into on the street? And like, anytime I walk out my door, something happens, right? Something, I meet somebody, I this, but if you're just here, like, slicing open Amazon packages all day, you know, what's going to happen to you? So anyway, I know this is off topic, but I, I think about this a lot, actually, especially in terms of bookstores. And somebody once joked, uh, who I was chatting with about it, they're like, or maybe it was somebody who worked in a bookstore. It's just like, really? You need this, like, by the end of the day? You're really going to start reading this particular book? You can't wait to start this book. It's going to sit on your bedside for months. So why do you need it tomorrow by 9 p.m.? Couldn't you wait a week? Could you not read something else? So I don't know. I, I I feel like maybe there needs to be a campaign for bookstores as a whole that it's like it's just as like really you, like when are you gonna <laughs> when are you gonna read this or something that that encourages people to go back into the stores and rethink how they've made all these decisions. I don't know. Maybe you could start it.
2: Yeah. Well, I'm not gonna start a business. I love writing so much, but. <laughs> not even a business. And I'm so glad I could still do it, even though I thought I would give up. But you know, it's like your podcast. It talks, (laughs) a campaign. Yeah. A campaign. A campaign. Your podcast is called Moms Don't Have Time to Read, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I was thinking about it because I'm a mom and I was thinking about how reading has changed for me since I became a mother. And I think that it changes the way you write a book too, right? So the reason I wrote this book in 12 sessions. I also think it's because the way I consume books now are in 30 second in 30 minute sessions, right? It's when I'm commuting. It's yep. when I actually have a little downtime before sleep. And in some ways I was like, yeah, this book is perfect for moms who don't have time to read. It's true. All In these tiny, like these small sessions that you actually could read one yep. and then read another. And you know, in 12 weeks, it'll be done because that's how long the book is. <laughs> <laughs> 12 days. Yeah. Yeah. If you do it every day. Mm-hmm.
0: That's perfect. Yes. You're absolutely right. And also people like to feel accomplished. Yeah. 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 Right. That they could do a whole thing, like a whole chapter, a whole section and they feel good about themselves and then they want to read it again. Mm-hmm. So there you go. <laughs> What's your next project?
2: You know, I have a lot of projects where I'm working on right now. One is about a young street photographer and another one is set in Italy. So I'm, it's hard for me to figure out like where my, it's funny because I was thinking I would, I was working more on the street photographer project, but now that Cara Romero, I'm, work, I'm talking so much about Cara Romero, I might start working on the Italian project because it's dealing with immigrants and labor as well. But again, like right now I'm on tour and I really want to be present on tour. I'm not trying to be the writer and also the author, right? Yeah. Being the author requires a lot of energy <laughs> <laughs> and being the writer requires a different kind of energy. And one thing I've learned the hard way is that I could really just do one thing at a time. Well, I could do a lot. I'm I'm a great You know, I think women have been made to think that we're great multitaskers, like moms especially, right? And that we could do it all. But I think that that myth is, or we should rephrase it and say, we can't do it all well. Somebody pays. Our child pays. Our partner pays. Our jobs pay. Like our writing pays. Our bodies. Our bodies. <laughs> and I'm really trying to do like be present for this book after I work so hard on it, what, you know, as much as possible. Go do that. That's amazing.
0: Yeah. Forget the other projects.
2: We'll see what happens. I They'll mean, work. they, they live there, right? Yeah. Like I well, really now I'm like, oh yeah, all that stuff I was doing in 2015. I see it come through the book now, right? Like, so living life is also writing,
0: right? Yep. yep. It's an important, important ingredient. You need the ingredients before you can make the cake. Mm-hmm that was my genius statement of the day. So there you go. (laughs) Anyway, Angie, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for all of your work and all, honestly, the role model of resilience is just unparalleled. So it's amazing. Thank you so much. Okay. Have a great day. Okay. You too. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of moms don't have time to read books.
1: Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk?